Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe, and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. We will be posting new episodes every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. In today's episode of What About Death, I speak with Dr. Sarah Winch, an Australian healthcare ethicist, who talks to us about the importance of developing our death literacy and why talking about death during our life can help to reduce our fear and discomfort by preparing us for the inevitability of death, whether it comes to us today or any time in the future. So today I'd like to introduce Dr. Sarah Winch, who is the author of a book called The Best Death, How to Die Well. She's also an Australian healthcare ethicist, and she is an advocate, a great advocate of the development of death literacy. So thank you so much, Sarah, for taking the time to join me today. Thank you for having me speak. So the very first question that I ask all of my guests is, what is your first recollection, memory, experience of death? I had a very powerful experience um, in my teenage years. And just when I was 20, I had a very close friend who had uh, bone cancer. And she died when I was 20. And so it really was a very formative experience for me to have someone young die and a close friend die. And afterwards, I felt quite unwell. And that was my first experience of grief. Yeah, so it had been quite... uh, That death is actually driven all of my work since. It really was a pivotal moment in my life. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. Appreciate it. Uh, was there a catalyst that contributed to you recognising the need and the importance to develop death literacy, whether that's uh, in families, in communities? Was there a catalyst for that? There was. I had assumed working in the area because my friend Jenny, her death was not perhaps as good as I would have liked. And I felt quite helpless. I was a third year student nurse and I felt quite helpless in the whole process. So I had devoted my time, she died in 1981, I had devoted my time to finding out more about good dying processes and had done quite a bit of work in that area as a nurse um, while I was studying to be a sociologist. So I just assumed that everybody knew what I knew. I think you do. And then when my husband was dying, He actually urged me to write about it, to write the book, because he said, who knows about this stuff? Mm -hmm. And I said, but I thought everybody knew about it. And he said, well, they don't. So then at his funeral, my PhD supervisor said to me, did Lincoln have a good death? And I said, well, yes. And she said, well, I'd expect that with all your knowledge. And she said, don't you think you have an ethical obligation to share it? And I said, I suppose so. I mean, what if you did know something that was fairly simple, Mm -hmm. that was stopping others from getting a good death? 
So that's how the book came about. And I did have a narrative that I could use with my girlfriend's death all those years ago. That wasn't my narrative. She was a very dear friend, but I wasn't a family member. So I never really feel, this is probably the first time I've spoken publicly about her death. Um, And even then I won't speak too much Mm, about it because it's not my story to share. But Lincoln's was mine and he had given permission. So there I had a narrative and a number of other different cases I could weave together to put together the basic information that I felt that I used and it accumulated over the years. Yes. I do want to talk a little bit later about what a good death means, but we'll, mm. we'll come back to that. So tell me what exactly death literacy means. Well, for me, it's the ability to know about death and dying, but also to act in the space when things are going wrong. So what is normal? What can I expect? And how do I do something about it if something's not going the way I want to? A classic one, oh, my husband died or my wife died or my father died in a terrible amount of pain. He was screaming and dying in pain at the end. The death literate person might have picked up the phone, rung the ambulance and got the person to the emergency department or got the person some pain relief. They would know that dying in pain is not a normal part of death. It's just not. And there are ways that we can deal with that. So when my father was dying recently, he was put on a syringe driver, but the nurses were a little concerned. They said, look, the doctor hasn't given much in the syringe driver. And I said, okay, then I said, well, let's see how many breakthroughs he uses and overnight. And if he uses a lot, then we can get it redone tomorrow. And they said, oh, we don't know if the doctor will like that. And I said, I'll get another doctor in because I know that I can do that. I know that I can get as many consults as I like. For me, for my father, I was his enduring power of attorney. Mm -hmm. However, the breakthroughs did work. That's um, That's some extra painkillers, extra painkillers that he had. Mm -hmm. And my sister sat with him the first night. She'd flown in and hadn't spent much time with him. I said, you sit the first night, I'll sit the second night, the sitting, as I call it. We started the sitting. And I said, now see how he is here. He is comfortable. This is what we expect death to be like. If he gets uncomfortable or agitated, then you ring and get the nurse to come and give extra morphine. She did point. She felt he was uncomfortable. So she went down and found the sister and they came down. He was in a nursing home and they came down and gave him the extra medication. So it's that level of knowing sort of, well, actually, that's not quite right. And I give some examples in the book about what's not quite right. And then the idea of what you should and shouldn't expect. So I think all of that comes into it. But if you sort of know some things, but you don't feel the ability to do something about it in the context, then you would wonder about the level of literacy. So for me, it's that ability to take that knowledge and use it, not in an activist sense, but to be able to say, oh, that's not right. I feel now that I'm going to put my hand up. And that's terribly intimidating. Big emergency department or in a big hospital. I've been around them since I was 17. So I try to think about, well, hey, how is it like for the other person? This is what you need to do. With my husband, we had long, deep conversations about what dying would be like because he had he was a great movie buff, so he'd only seen death on telly and death on movies, and some of that was terrible, you know, and, and it's also also condensed into an hour or an hour and a half. So, you know, we spoke about, well, no, you know, this is going to be a peaceful event and this is what how it will unfold and this is what will happen. 
It sounds to me that it is a lot like, uh, you know, just giving both the person dying and their family's agency to mm. make choices and to be able to have that quality agency for themselves. And, make... and they're scared and they're probably entering, you know, preliminary grieving as yeah. well. You know, yeah. they're seeing what's going to unfold. I mean, they may have read about these terrible dying stories. They may hear that it's all very bad, that it'll all be much better at home, but then things start falling apart at mm. home. So I think that it's it's a tricky time. So I always recommend to people it's a good idea to get your head a bit around this before anything happens. <laughs> so then in your experience in terms of working around end of life, both professionally and personally, how have you decided what the best way is to get this notion of death literacy out into the community? I've done a multi prong thing one of the things when we wrote best death is um one of my closest girlfriends is an indigenous woman and we realized straight away it was very white middle class so we needed to think about different ways so we i've done death cafe um, which brings people together to talk about things so just bringing that very first step of talking about death and dying that might lead them on to information very clear in the book that there's a lot more information than than in the little book then we also did wine and die which became we started running that at conferences as you know a networking wine event and that was has been very very successful it's a queensland version of death cafe which is tea coffee and cake this is wine and nibbles mm. and, and death conversation then while i was overseas i met an incredible woman who'd set up a death festival in cardiff jenny kitzinger she was on a sabbatical, so she then came to Brisbane and shared her ideas, and that became the first Brisbane Death Festival, and two of those have run, and subsequent festivals have run in other states as well. So I've tried to be as multi-pronged as I can with the realisation that communication has to happen in many different forms. So talkback radio, even the students, medical students, when I was teaching medical students for years, they would ask to do a death cafe and I thought that was powerful too. So that's sort of some of the range of things that I've done. I've written things for newspapers and, you know, done podcasts mm. um, as well. So I'm trying to reach as many people, not to necessarily be all of the information, but to say there's a lot out there, something will suit you. Just trying to encourage people, create that space where it's okay to talk about death. That's probably a first step. Um, and then it's okay to to want to read about it and engage about it long before, you know, when you're well. In fact, that's the best yes, time. Yes, indeed. That's what yeah. is a consistent theme is talk about it while you're well, you know, yeah. don't avoid it. So tell me a little bit more about death cafes. What type of people... Um, facilitate them and then what type of people participate in them and what sort of stuff do you talk about? So Death Cafe is a community movement and it actually arose by an anthropologist who was in Sweden, one, I think Swedish or, or Swiss, and then it was taken up and popularised in the UK. And it's very much a community movement. You can get on the Death Cafe website, nothing right, there's nothing wrong about them, there's no preset objectives. It's a safe space for talking about end of life and whatever comes up, comes up. So some of them are held quite regularly, like I know there's ones in New York and London that are held every fortnight. I've done large ones in coffee shops. In Warwick, I had 65 people. I've done smaller ones, the death festivals, we had a small one, all sorts of different things. You're not obliged to talk. We keep the talk respectful that's the only time I really jump in I'll lead off with my story why I'm interested in and then people will talk 
So it can be educative. It's mainly, though, creating that first space. So people might ask things and you can say things, but it's really about people talking about their experiences and their fears. Uh, one death cafe which had all young people was commenting on the refugee movement out of Syria and the little boy that was washed up on on the sand and how confronting they find violent death and violent death of children. So that was a very different death cafe for me. Wine and Die tends to be run for professionals and they're talking about the amount of death they have to deal with in their work and how they try immoral distress and moral injury around some of that. So they do tend to be a little bit more in the professional context, whereas Death Cafe is very much in, in the community. So when you're listening to people, you know, talk about their perspective on death or their view or their experience, do you get a sense of this negativity and pessimism? If so, what do you think is behind that? And if not, then what are they presenting that doesn't seem to be out in general society? Actually, the opposite. I think a lot of people come to Death Cafe to talk about the positive experience they've had of death and dying, and they're quite surprised about that. And I'm wondering if, if the good death or positive dying or whatever you call it is being silenced. There is such a negative view of death and dying that when mm. people actually do get to die and it's a more positive experience or they witness someone, they, they want mm. to come and talk about it. Um, I think the positive thinking movement has doesn't let us tolerate any no- negative thoughts. We've always got to be upbeat. We've always got to be happy. And I think that there have been some really interesting books written around Smile and Die is one of them, of a, of a woman who got breast cancer, a sociologist who got breast cancer and then found that she wasn't allowed to be sad and she had a little pink bag of goodies and all of these mm. sort of things that there wasn't allowed to be. Just as in life, we're meant to be productive, mm. happy, on message somehow in that narrative and how we've constructed contemporary living death doesn't fit but yet it's a biological no yes indeed. and so we struggle to talk about it you talking about um, this notion of death literacy and death cafes how does having a deeper understanding or a better understanding of dying and death benefit people whether that's as individuals or as families or as a society? What do you think does it bring? I think when you get a catastrophic diagnosis, and all of us will get one one day, you know, Mm. I think people do feel there is a a loss of sense of control. And I think we're very much in a society that values control and, as I said, values productivity. So then you have a bit of an understanding of what you can do to make the end as good as it can be for you. And there are different conditions, so not everybody's going to die in the same way. But what can you do to create the best set of circumstances to enable the best passing, how you define it. Now, I have worked with young mothers dying from breast cancer who, for example, have not wanted any pain relief at end of life at all because they've wanted to be able to communicate with their children right up until the end. So it's not necessarily pain-free, although I think that would be high on the list. Mm. So it really is very individual. But if you did know that there was something you could do to enable that passing to be less traumatic for yourself and for others around you, then I think that's that's a good thing to know. So in terms of your own experience, what contributes to people discomfort around the topic of death and dying? What are you observing over your years of practice? Most of the people I've worked with who, who have been dying do reach a sense of acceptance. I mean, they're they're living in that body that is slowly deteriorating or rapidly deteriorating and they're getting a realisation towards the end that that this isn't going to reverse and that you can't live like this. So there is that. 
I think for the people bearing witness, it is a lot more difficult because you have to wait and be supportive and there are quite a few unknowns in that process. So I think that's a bit harder for those people. But if you know that people are unlikely, the dying process can take months out. So I have a friend whose mother's dying at the moment and he was concerned, she's in hospice, that she'd stopped eating and didn't have an appetite. And he was bringing up many tempting little things. He just wanted her to eat because he said, she's not going to get any strength. You know, I know she's in the hospice. I know that, you know, she's not going to come out, but I'd just like her to eat. And I said to him very calmly, I think she started to die. She's at the beginning of the dying process and that it's lovely to tempt her with little things, but if she doesn't want those, that's the body very naturally starting to shut down in the very, very early stages. And he said, oh, okay, he didn't, yeah, okay, yep, I accept that. It seems again that we're a little bit conditioned to do everything right until that last moment to keep to keep mm. clinging on to life. Perhaps it comes back to this productivity that you were Yeah, you were and positive thinking earlier. and productivity yeah. and all of those things. And it becomes so enculturated, but dying has been around as long as living and it hasn't changed particularly. No. <laughs> we may we may have changed the way we die and that we can make it, we can prolong dying for a very, very long time if mm. we want to, but death is still death. And so we then try to make sense of it from our cultural frameworks, which is a Western capitalist, productive, scientific, rationalist approach mm. instead of just sitting and enjoying the mysteriousness of it mm. and the calmness and, and having that bit of knowledge which will help you bring comfort to yourself because at least, well, at least I've got something a friend of mine was at a death went to see someone who was dying and she's actually a palliative care physician and she went with a friend to check on his wife and wife's sisters were there and this dear lady had started breathing the shame stoking breathing which is like the deep breaths and then the shallow breath and then one day that won't happen and mm. one hour that won't happen and so Nikki went to launch in to tell them that and the sisters said, we know, and they held up a copy. We have this book. We know what this is. <laughs> so they weren't concerned by it. You can't stop it. There's no real treatment unless there's some really moist gurgling. We can give them a something. And she was telling me, she said, you know, it was lovely to see that these sisters had gone out and was in the library, had tried to find out a bit of information. So when they saw this classic end-of-life symptom, they weren't distressed by it. It won't stop their grief, but at least in that moment, they knew, well, this isn't weird, and, yeah, I know a little bit, and it gave them a sense of confidence to sit in the space. Some of the saddest things I've seen, and this is in my family, is particularly put, people put their hands up and say, I can't deal with it. Don't ask me to deal with this, it's mm. too much. And for the dying person, for, for my mother who had a son like that, it was very difficult for her. Sure. She understood, but still, you know, some of that I wonder is fear of the unknown and is mm. there something we can do to help you engage? Maybe there isn't, but mm. maybe it is a matter of knowledge or support or someone talking a fears through with you. Sometimes it's because we're actually not just com we're not comfortable just sitting in silence with somebody no. as they're coming towards their end of life you know we're so enculturated to constantly be doing something that just sitting and being you know with another human being is a very difficult task for us well I'd taken I'd stopped work at the point when my dad died this year and I was speaking to um, our executive dean and he was asking me how my retirement was and I said it was great because I was able to sit in the space with my father mm. 
And he said, oh, but you know faculty would have given you that time off. And I said, I know faculty would have, and there would have been no problems at all. But in my mind, I would have been running through a to-do list. Yep. Oh, yep, I'll be here with Dad, then I'll go and check my email. Then I said, whereas I just sat and thought, this is deeply significant time. My brother wasn't there, so I was texting him Dad's last moments and Dad's last words, fully engaged and immersed mm. in that death rather than thinking, oh, I've got to do this or oh, I've got to do that. So for me, that most recent death of a family member, my dad at 91 and a half, was really, really quite quite special, I think, having that time to just sit and push those things aside. And I'm not sure people have that. I think very few have mm. that. <laughs> mm, yeah. So in your book, you um, talk about a good death. So tell me, you know, what does that mean to you versus a not-so-good death? I think to get a good death, you need to think what's meaningful to you and what are your values and what are your circumstances. I'm not keen on particularly saying that all deaths at home are good, all deaths in hospital are terrible, because I've worked in both sectors and I know that's true. So I like to take location out of it because that's a very fluid thing that can change. But I like to work with people and think, what is important to you? What do you need? I think there are some very classic things around. Most people want to be clean and comfortable. They may want family. They may not want family. So it's a very individual thing. Mm. And then, you know, a lot of people would say, I'd like to be pain-free, but then we've got other people, with, particularly with young children, I've seen this repeatedly, no, don't knock me out. I just don't want that some people prefer it to be more quick we can't really control over that so I think it's really important to get your expectations out and then work with your palliative care team if you've got one or your death doula or whoever is around to say well what is reasonable to to expect with this I mean there have been people for example who want all the family in the room around them my husband only wanted me Mm. didn't want the children to see him die other people really that's culturally they would like to do that Really, I know this is wishy-washy without saying stuff, but it's really got to come from you, which then puts the onus on people to do a little bit of thinking. And I tend to think people like to die how they lived. So, you know, what were the things that really drove you when you were alive and, and how is that going to translate into a dying experience? So it is, if you were a person, for example, and I've seen this with hospital design that, you know, sometimes when they withdraw life support and intensive care, they'll take them outside to do it. They've got provision to take them outside and have a barbecue with the family and withdraw life support in nature. And I think that would be beautiful. I would love to die in nature if someone could wheel me out under a tree. I love trees. You know, that's a great death for that person. Somebody else would be like, oh, no, you know, I don't want to be doing that or I want to die quietly, privately. I'm an introverted person. There is no way I want to just quietly die at home. My mother-in-law recently, we were talking, and she said, I just want to die in my brown chair over there. And I said, well, that would be lovely. But who knows what's going to happen. And I think that's part of the thing with death literacy, isn't it? It's about, you know, I think oftentimes because we're so driven by social construct that we think it should be this rather Mm. than what actually works for me as an individual or as a family or Mm. you know whatever and so we're trying to fit our end of life into a social construct rather Mm. than actually what is or it's some sort of traditional you know sort of construct rather than what do I actually really want to do how do I want this to be the other thing I want people to think about is what are you likely to die of and I think statistically most people don't realize if you look at statistics most of us are not going to die of cancer we're going to die of dementia so that 
evokes a very different scenario. People then go, oh, dementia, that's what you're likely to die of. And so then how do you want to die in that context? Because most people with dementia will end up have to be in a care facility. And so, you know, then how do we work as, as a society to, in, to ensure those care facilities are as good as we can make them and that people can die well there? And my recent experiences are very and excellent. They'd really thought about that for their residents. So that's the other thing to think about. I think we all tend to think, again, because of publicity, we're probably going to get cancer and die mm. from cancer. But when we look at the top five causes of death, lung cancer comes in at number four, and that's the first cancer, not breast not prostate, not what you think. It's really very deeply shocking, mm. deeply shocking. So as you've spent a lot of time working in this field and experiencing people's views through death, ca death cafes and death literacy, has that changed your own view of death over time? I'm thinking about this recently. I mean, I think when I was younger with my girlfriend dying, I thought I too would get some form of cancer when I was older. And it did sensitise me to younger people die of cancer. I'm less sure now because I think that I used to think, well, this would be the way I'd rally a few friends, I'd have some instructions, I'd tell them what I wanted. I do think as life goes on, I probably will not be someone who accepts a lot of treatment if it does go on to a cancer or something like that. I'm comfortable with the thought of death. I'm less comfortable with the thought of dying with dementia, although I'm thinking more about that. And so I think as I've gone on, I've probably became more aware of what people are actually dying. People are living longer and what they're dying of and how to make that a better death. So I think it is changing. I'm comfortable with my understanding of the afterlife. And I'm comfortable with the fact that we're here for a finite time. So it's just then what are you actually going to die of because that can make quite a, quite a big difference. And particularly in the last 10 years, the thing that's come to the forefront is we're likely to die of dementia. Mm -hmm. So then, of course, you are then very much engaged with public policy where you might have preferred before to work around it and nip under it, it's more difficult. I feel more of a sense of, oh, I could if I wanted to opt out of treatments. I don't have to accept every treatment that's offered. I could opt out of a treatment or I could, you know, do some of the things that you've seen people do, which is, you know, they get a diagnosis and then they go on a, a long road trip and um, so that would be fantastic <laughs> um, with, you know, a whole pile of morphine, I, I guess, if you think that. Or if you've got dementia, a way of thinking about, well, you know, what is the sort of when you are confronted with losing identity and some of those things how so I'm probably thinking that through but I'm the sort of person that thinks well you know I, I believe the spirit does continue and that like you know an old pair of shoes eventually the body's going to wear out so it's just how it's going to wear out and and how you know how things are going to work in the end we don't quite know but I certainly believe in a spiritual life after death is that comforting yes in a way because you'll be with other spirits but obviously you'll be they'll be saying goodbye to the people here so that's my personal view Excellent. with some very complex theology that we won't go into yes, yes sure so what do you think we can do um, as individuals and as communities the, the problem of death illiteracy is much much deeper than I thought and much more widespread and there were pa and and you know the culture goes against it positive thinking production nobody's interested in the dying they're not going to vote sort of stuff so why do we need to know about it it's almost like 
that's become a lot more apparent. Finally, then, um, I just like to talk about what would you say would be the most uh, important or beneficial things for people to consider or reflect on while alive in relation to death? Okay, so the most important thing I would be asking people to think about is think about what your values are. Now, they're really hard things to think about. And if you're worried about how do I know what a value is, a value is something that has an emotional component so that it's something that you might do that you don't like or something happens that you don't like. A rational component, you understand it and it drives behaviour. So think about those things that are really important to you in life because they are generally the things that are going to be important to you in death. And, And then Don't get too hung up on, I've got to die at home, I can't die in a hospital, or whatever. Don't get too hung up on those things at all. And I think for all of us to be prepared that I'm I'm always blown away. The things that are really great about death cafes and death literacy is that getting more knowledgeable in this area helps me enjoy my life more because I know my life is finite. So I know that, but now I know it a deeper understanding from talking to everybody and I appreciate life and I, you know, I I enjoy life because I know that not every day I'm going to be here. So there is more of a sense of purpose and deep enjoyment and understanding of life and less of a fear of death. Life is random and precious and I think that's what's drawn to me more, the, the randomness of now reflecting, particularly as I've just retired on my working life, the randomness and cruelty of life at times. You know, young, good people die. Some people who we would say are terrible people live on to be a, a ripe old age. Mm. And um, there's some interesting things there that you've got to think of at quite a deep level um, to sort of try and check ourselves. Because my husband was a healthy triathlete and died in four months of a progressive cancer. So <laughs> at, you know, 49. So And that's why I guess while alive, it's worth reflecting on the, the intersect between the certainty and uncertainty of death. We're going to die, but the uncertainty of when or how. Very well put. I like that. I like that a lot. And that's exactly right. All right. Well, perhaps that's a good note to end on. (laughs) So thank you so much again, uh, Dr. Winch, for for speaking with me today. And uh, I wish you very well in your retirement. (laughs) Thank you. Please join me for our next episode of What About Death, where I speak with Dr. Michael Barbato, who has been a medical doctor for 55 years and a specialist palliative care physician for over 30 years. Michael shares his valuable insights from both a personal and professional perspective on the importance and value of palliative care for those with a life-limiting illness and those who are approaching death. I look forward to your company then. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast. Brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.